As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. O Father, you are the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you. So help us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom. So we ask you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and hear us, for we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. And we'll read together the first 10 verses, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians, chapter 2. Probably a well-known passage to many of us, but a reminder once again of God's gracious salvation extended to his people in Christ Jesus. So we'll read Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, as I said, from reading this passage and from reading uh, what we did from the catechism, we're dealing with that important doctrine of of justification, uh, an important doctrine for us to get right as Christians uh, for our comfort and for our consolation. Um, I came across a quote a while ago that I really liked. Uh, It said, Church historian Claire Davis describes the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. Because we often say, I know I've forgotten this before. Um, And I don't know if you've ever felt that way with a doctrine or something in Scripture where you you knew I had it at one point. Um, I understood it at one point. It was explained to me at one point. And I had it then. But it's since slipped through my fingers. I know there was a time that if you asked me about the doctrine of justification, I could give a robust answer to the question. Um, And then there are times where I feel like it's slipped through my fingers. I feel like that church historian who says, I know I've forgotten this before. Um, And we need that in the Christian life to be reminded. We might think, well, you know, this is, you know, the other way of looking at it is to say, oh, we're reformed Christians. This is a layup, isn't it? Don't we always talk about the doctrine of justification, the article on which the church stands or falls, Luther called it. Uh, don't we talk about this all the time? 
But it's good for us to come back and make sure we rightly understand these things um, because it's one thing to be able to answer questions from a certain perspective. Um, It's another thing to be able to answer them for ourselves for the comfort and consolation of our own souls. Um, If you ask someone how you're saved... Uh, they might give you one of three correct answers. Now, I know that there's only one name given among men by which you must be saved, but, I mean, we express that sometimes in different ways. Um, I'm saved by grace alone, we sometimes say. And that's right. Sometimes we expand it by saying, I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone. And that's a more complete answer. Then if we want to be more complete yet, we'll say I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone. Uh, So you can be more specific as you go on. And I bet most of us could do that. Um, I bet most of us could at least play defense if I asked you, are we saved by our works? Uh, We would say, no, we're saved by Christ. Um, But... Now I want you to imagine that you're standing before the Lord. This is a fictional, this is not going to happen. But I want you to imagine that you're standing before the Lord and the Lord in his glory puts to you this question. Are you righteous? Are you righteous? Um, That's a different kind of question, isn't it? Um, it would be difficult to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and have to answer that question. Um, are you righteous? So, you know, there's a difference in there between saying, I know the general propositional truth of how we're saved, but can I apply it to myself with enough robustness that I would dare to say yes to that question? Um, I think that's what we're, we're thinking about in this article, making sure that for our comfort and for our consolation we can answer that question yes i'm righteous in jesus christ before god Uh, yes because of what god has done he has made me righteous not with a righteousness in myself but a righteousness that i find in christ because if we know that if we can keep it in mind and try to remember that thing we know we learned before but maybe have forgotten Um, It's for our comfort. It's for our consolation. And God wants us to know for sure that we could stand before His throne of grace and say to Him that I am righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. I have a righteousness not of my own, uh, but a righteousness that comes to me from God. God did not give us Ephesians 2 just to convey propositional truth just so that we have a passage that we can use to beat our Arminian friends over the head with. Uh, That's how I sometimes, when I was a younger kid, would go to my dad growing up in a Reformed church. You'd meet an Arminian, and they'd be talking to you about it, and you'd say, Dad, give me a, what passage can I use to really cream that kid the next time I talk to him? And he would say, you know, that's not really what the Bible's for. Um, But what, what do we want to be able to use these things for? Not so we can win theological debates, But God wants our souls to be comforted. That's why Ephesians 2 was written for us. Think about the comfort and the consolation that's communicated in those familiar words. Look at verses 4 through 7 again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That God has done this for us out of the great love with which he loved us. That he desired for us to be lifted up and seated next to him. That he desired that his kindness towards us in Christ might be shown throughout the ages. What a tragedy it would be if we could not apply these things for our own comfort, for our own consolation. To not really understand how much we are loved by our God. Um, one of the doctrines, the things that the doctrine of justification does is comfort us. Gives us the comfort and the assurance that God wants us to have. That we are loved by him. That we are right with him. That we have nothing to fear because of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's why this Lord's Day is so helpful for us. Um, it asks three very basic questions. We want to kind of use those questions as our way of going through this doctrine tonight. The first question is an excellent one. What, what good does it do you that you believe all this? We've just taken time to go through the Apostles' Creed, and that's what that question is asking. What good does it do that you believe all this? And then after stating something that's so wonderful, question 60 really is asking, how can this be? How can this glorious truth be ours? And then finally the question is, what is it? Is it my faith that makes me right with God? Um, or is it the righteousness of Christ that makes me right before God? So these are three really important questions. We're going to use them as our guide. What good does it do you to believe all these things? How can this be? And is it your faith that makes you right before God? Um, the first question is really asking, what good does it do to believe all this? And we have to understand what all this is referring to in question 59. This has just been after we've been going through Lord's Day after Lord's Day of understanding what's in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, since Lord's Day 8, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed all the way through Lord's Day 22. And we are told all the way back at the beginning of this discussion that the Apostles' Creed summarizes all that is promised to us in the gospel. So what we've been doing in the catechism is going through what does the Apostles' Creed say to us? What does the gospel promise to us? And then we come to question 59, which asks the very important practical question, what good does it do now that we've studied all this, now that we believe all of this, what good is this for us? What is the practical value of this? Uh, what is this good for, all of this knowledge? Um, teachers have to deal with this all the time. Students asking the question, why do I need to know this? When am I going to use this? I remember I had a math teacher in high school who, on her, on her wall, and as you walked in, it said, when are we going to use this? And then it had a whole chart of jobs and what kind of math they required and so she could show you right on the wall, just that's, that's where you're going to use this. Don't ask me the question. Look at all the jobs that you need to know these things. Um, because that's what students often want to know. Why do I have to know this? 
What good is it to know this? And teachers often, who are good teachers, explain that. Not just the content of what they're teaching, but why it's important. Uh, The what, the content, and the so what. What are you going to use this for? Why are these things important? Why have we spent all this time, the catechism asks, going through what's outlined in the Apostles' Creed? Uh, What good does it do to know this? Um, And the, the answer of question 59 is profound. What good does it do to you that you believe all this? If you believe all this, then you are righteous in Christ before God and an heir to eternal life. It's better than anything that was on my math teacher's chart. If you believe all these things, then so what? What good is it to you? If you believe all these things, then you are righteous in Christ before God and an heir to eternal life. It just says it. <laughs> That's, you know, it's a kind of remarkable question and answer, if you think about it. It's so profound in what it promises, so expansive in what it promises. Um, and that is the truth. Those things are ours by faith in Christ. The, the Word of God is clear about that. That we are righteous in Christ before God if we believe all these things. Romans 1.17, talking about the gospel, said, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul goes on in Romans 5, 1 and 2 to say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are righteous in Christ before God, and we are heirs to eternal life. Jesus said in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Titus 3.7, Paul says that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you believe all these things about God that he's revealed in his word, you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are righteous before God and an heir to eternal life. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. These gifts are ours now. And that kind of leads to question 60, in a sense. It leads us to then ask the question, how can this be? Because if we think to that situation of trying to stand before God and claim righteousness, we we kind of rebel against that idea. At least it gives us pause. Or we say, well, I'd have to add something to that statement. Um, Because we know the holiness of our God, and we know the condition of ourselves. Right? We know that we are right before God on the basis of the declaration that He makes He's clear about that in his word. It's the glorious declaration that God makes about us in Christ, that by faith in him, by faith in Christ, we are righteous before God and heirs to eternal life. We know that that is the declaration he makes, but we also know who we are. That's what makes embracing that that truth and actually believing that that truth is true for me That's what makes it kind of difficult. I mean, imagine a defendant in a courtroom and he's waiting for 
the verdict to be read. Um, And as the verdict is about to be read, he's guilty and he knows it. And he's pretty sure that through the course of the trial, the judges come to know it. The jury has come to know it. And so what do you expect when you stand to hear the verdict read, but that you will be declared guilty? But instead, when the verdict is read, you're declared not guilty. It goes against everything you've prepared yourself for. It goes against everything you know. And imagine how that, that realization would shockingly dawn on you I'm not going to jail. I'm, I'm about to be set free. Um, now, if we think about that scenario, we kind of rebel against it because we think, well, a guilty person should go to jail. They shouldn't go free. Um, that's because we show we understand the law. And we can apply it to that hypothetical person and we can apply it to ourselves. I think that's where the catechism shows real insight to us. What are the difficulties that we have in embracing the gospel? Because the free grace of God really confuses and confounds sinners who know themselves to be sinners. The, the, the Catechism question 60 points out the hurdles to gospel comfort that God's people face. Um, we have a tough time believing the gospel because we're so wired to understand the law by nature That's what we were made to respond to God's law. And so the gospel is preached outside of us as an alien idea. It's an idea that comes to us from outside of ourselves. And it's so difficult for us to understand because we know who we are according to the law. And we face these great hurdles to gospel comfort. And and question 60 mentions two of them. That we have a conscience that is always accusing us. And that we have a sinful nature that's still inclined towards all evil. And, and that's what makes it very difficult to really embrace this idea that I could be righteous before God. Even in Christ Jesus. Uh, because I have an accusing conscience. Right? What we hear in Romans 3, 9 and 10 makes sense to us. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's where we want to go when someone says, are you righteous? We want to say, no one's righteous, no, not one. Um, And I know that because not only what God's word says, because what my conscience is always saying to me about myself. Um, We know what we have to say when we're called to confess our sins, right? I have to ask God to forgive me for all the evil that I've done and for all the good that I've left undone, for all the ways I've violated what his commands tell me not to do and the way I've failed to do all the things his law tells me to positively do. Um, And that's what our accusing conscience is reminding us of. You've grievously sinned against all the commandments of God. You've never kept any of them. How can you call yourself righteous? I think we've all experienced that accusing conscience that that is a hurdle to to gospel comfort. And if that were all in the past, that would be one thing. But we still have 
an evil nature that we're dealing with, an inclination to do evil, a sinful nature that's still inclined toward all evil, the kind of thing Paul expresses wrestling with in Romans 7, 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so when my conscience comes along and says, you've never kept the law. You've violated every part of it. And my evil nature pops up and says, and you're still inclined to do wicked things. How could you call yourself righteous? Um, Well, then it can't be anything in me. I would have to look outside of me to make this claim. It can't be any merit of mine that would allow me to say something like this. As Paul says in Titus 3.5, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not any merit of my own. It has to be a righteousness that's all from God. Given to me out of sheer grace because clearly I've done nothing to earn it. And that's the glorious truth. That out of sheer grace, without my deserving it at all, God has given me the righteousness of Christ. It's good news of Romans 3, 21 to 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I can't find righteousness anywhere in myself. And so if I'm going to say I'm righteous, it has to be from outside of myself. It has to be from this gift of God that's been given me in Jesus Christ, that becomes mine through faith in Him. And how do we think of that? Catechism helps us there too. That God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. The perfect satisfaction of Christ. Um, When I am accusing myself of all of these sins, when I know my nature is such that I still am after these sins, what is the answer that Christ gives? I've died for those sins. I died for every law you broke and for every good deed you left undone. I paid for that in my death on the cross. My satisfaction covers your sins. And I give that to you freely. That perfect satisfaction for sins that Christ paid on the cross. What about my inclination towards all evil? Well, he grants to me his perfect righteousness and holiness. That covers over my sinfulness. I receive that from his hand as well. All the things that I should have done, he did. And he gives me his righteousness. The holiness that should have been mine and wasn't, he gives to me out of sheer grace, through faith in Him. That's the glorious good news of the Gospel. 
That's what Jesus does. By grace, his righteousness is now accounted as if it's ours. That's the glorious truth of Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christ came and took all of my sins and all of my failures on himself, and he paid for them at the cross. And he provides me all the righteousness and holiness without which no one can stand before a holy God. Everything I need has been given to me. Given to me by grace. And has become mine through faith in Christ. And now how does God regard us? What what is the consequence of having received by grace the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ? Now when God looks at me, what does he see? He looks at me as if I'd never sinned or been a sinner. And as if I'd been as perfectly righteous, as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That that God looks at us in a way we can hardly stand to consider ourselves. But then when he looks at us in Jesus Christ, that's what he sees. Someone who has been as, as if you never did anything wrong. And that you always did perfectly what God required of you. He looks at you and sees his son. And he loved you enough to give his son to you. You know, it's it's the love that comes across in Ephesians 2 that, that informs all of the theology that we've come to from other places in Scripture. It's what keeps it from becoming a mere technicality. Sometimes we like watching courtroom shows and we like that moment when the, the really slick lawyer has the, the law that no one really thought of or the, the witness that no one's heard from, and then suddenly they put it on and it just kind of flips the entire script. And we kind of think that maybe God is sort of like that. He's the lawyer with the slick trick. He knows how to move things around so that he can be both just and the justifier. And we, we can think that you know he's mechanically kind of worked out our salvation in this theological way. But Ephesians 2 reminds us what's behind that. The great love with which he loved us prompted him to send his son so that we could live. The only way we could live was through a savior who would die for sinners and who could impute his righteousness to us. And Jesus came because of the great love with which he loved us. That he might work this salvation for us and give this righteousness to us. So important because otherwise we we think that God just sees us in Jesus but doesn't really want to see us. Um, there, there have been people who've thought of salvation in those terms. I remember talking to a young person at a at an RYS retreat, and they say, Well, I, I believe in Jesus, so I believe God has to let me in, but I I'm not sure I can be as, you know, 
loud for God as people have said we should be at this conference. And so I'm worried that he'll let me in because he kind of has to, but he's not really going to be happy I'm there. That this is sort of the technical way you get through. And God is sort of, all right, well, technically you believe, so I guess technically you can come in. That's not why this happens. God has worked this because of the great love with which he loved us. Even while we were his enemies, he loved us so much that he sent his son, whom he loved, into the world to die to save sinners. And Christ loved us so much that he was willing to come and lay down his life for people like us who never kept any of his commandments, who always broke all of them, and who were still inclined toward all evil. Christ died for sinners, and it's because of the great love with which he loved us, because of the riches of his mercy, because of the greatness of his love. We never want these theological things to be so, become so technical that we forget the love of God that lies behind them. What was his goal to show forth in the world? That in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. The Lord wants you in his kingdom. That's why he moved heaven and earth to send his son to save you as a sinner. Um, So that he could look on you as he looks on his own beloved son. And see only righteousness and satisfaction and the holiness of Christ when he looks at us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 4, 22 and 25. That is why his faith was counted him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead of the Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And the good news is this becomes, all, this becomes ours just by trusting that God will give it to us. I mean, you do anything to be righteous before God and heir to eternal life. You'd do, you'd do anything God called you to do to do that. And he just calls us to trust in his gift. To trust that he gives what he promises. Right? I'm called just to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. That's how all of these things become mine. Jesus said in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Or in Acts 16, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your whole household. I think what makes it hard is we know ourselves so well, and we we hear what God is promising us, and it's so great. And it seems like we don't really have to do hardly anything to take part in it. You know, here I'm giving you this big gift. Well, what what do I do to get it? You just have to accept it. Okay? Now what else? No, just accept it. That's that can't be right. There's gotta be there's gotta be some catch, right? Not just accept it. That's too good to be true. And so what do we do? We we apply the law again. We say, well, there must be some 
It must be my faith then, right? I have to kind of have a really robust kind of faith then for that to save me. The quality of my faith really I have to work on. And that's what question 61 says. No, don't bring your faith in as a work. Um, Does this mean your faith is what makes you right with God? The quality of your faith makes you right with God. Uh, No, not because I please God with the worthiness of my faith. Don't turn your faith into a work, the catechism says. That's not how it works. We accept by faith. Our faith is not the work we do to receive eternal life. It's just the instrument by which we take hold of Christ's grace. To make it way overly simplified, if you were dying of thirst in the wilderness and someone gave you a big glass of water with a straw in it and you, you wonderfully slurped it all down and were, were just so thankful to have a drink of water and said, I'm so thankful for that straw. It really saved my life. You say, well, the straw didn't save your life. The water saved your life. The straw was just the means by which you had the life-giving water. That's what we're taught faith is. It's the way we become partakers of the glory of God, of the grace of God. Um, But it's Christ who saves us. Where does the catechism turn us right back around again when it says, not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive that righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. It's Christ who saves us. His satisfaction, His righteousness, His holiness. The only way to become a partaker in Christ is by faith. By that faith which is the gift of God to us, worked in us by the Holy Spirit. That's why Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, that's why Ephesians 2 as a whole is so precious to us because it makes it so clear. Christ saves us by grace. Verses 4 and 5 tell us. And grace becomes ours through faith. Verse 8 tells us. And faith comes to us by his work as a gift. Not as our work. So that God gets the glory from start to finish in our salvation. So that only Christ's righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness are my, are my righteousness before God. God has to receive all the credit, all the thanks, all the glory for justifying sinners. Uh, Canons of Dort article, Heads of Doctrine 3 and 4, Article 10 says, As he has chosen his own from eternity in Christ, so he calls them effectually in time, confers upon them faith and repentance, rescues them from the power of darkness, and translates them into the kingdom of his own Son, that they may show forth the praises of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, And may glory not in themselves, but in the Lord. That's the story of salvation. And it's that proper understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that would allow us to say, I am righteous. I am righteous, but not because I have a righteousness of my own. I'm righteous because I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, by God's grace through faith, He has made me a partaker in His satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. And I didn't do anything to earn it. It came to me solely out of His kindness, out of His love, out of His mercy. 
But because of what God has done, he looks at me as if I've never sinned or been a sinner. And as if I've been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. How the Lord has worked to accomplish his purpose. To show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the gospel is such good news for sinners and the glory of justification is such good news that it's easy for us to forget it. Either we look at our sinfulness and our accusing consciences and our sinful natures and think that we are too far from righteousness to find it, or we can't imagine that you would grant all these things to us solely through faith and that all these rich promises could possibly be ours. But Lord, help us to trust in your word, to trust that the things you promise are true, to see that it's a credit to the great love with which you've loved us and the riches of your mercy and the immeasurable kindness you've extended towards us in Christ. And may you work these things into our souls and help us to avoid that amnesia and deja vu that would cause us to forget the things that we've known before and help us to cling to Christ and to the salvation that's ours by faith and to know for certain that through faith in Christ we are righteous before you and heirs to eternal life. Thank you for revealing this truth to us. May all here embrace Christ by faith and have life in his name. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.